Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A part of Sean Vestal's debut novel, Daredevils, which is set in Arizona and Idaho in the mid-1970s, is 15-year-old Loretta, who slips out of her bedroom every evening to meet her so-called Gentile boyfriend. Her strict Mormon fundamentalist parents catch her returning one night and promptly marry her off to Dean Harder, a devout yet materialistic fundamentalist who already has a wife and a brood of kids. The Harders relocate to his native Idaho, where Dean's teenage nephew Jason falls hard for Loretta. A Zeppelin and Tolkien fan, Jason rather worships evil Knievel and longs to leave his closed-minded community. He and Loretta make a break for it. They drive all night, stay in hotels, relish their dizzying burst of teenage freedom as they seek to recover Dean's cache of Mormon gold. But someone Loretta left behind is on their trail. A desire of desire and a story of desire and escape, Daredevils features an interesting cast of secondary characters. Dean's other wife, Ruth, who was a child of the 1950s, was separated from her parents during the Short Creek Raid when federal agents descended on Mormon fundamentalist community. Jason's best friend, Boyd, part Native American, caught up in the activist spirit of the time, who comes along for the ride with disastrous results, and a superbly sleazy chatterbox. A man who might or might not be Evil Knievel himself, who works his charms on Loretta at a casino in Elko, Nevada. Sean Vestal is winner of 2014's Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize. Uh, he's a lifelong journalist whose spokesman column is a fixture in the Spokane, Washington. Vestal's fiction has appeared in journals like McSweeney's and Tin House. His first collection, God Forsaken Idaho, burrowed into the history as it engaged with masculinity and crime, faith and apostasy, and the West that he knows so well. Uh, Sean uh, Vestal wrote an article recently in New Yorker magazine, uh, which uh, profiles a uh, an attempted, uh, what's going to be an upcoming attempt to recreate evil's Knievel crossing of the, uh, the Snake River uh, Canyon. Uh, we'll talk about uh, evil Knievel and uh, much else uh, coming up with, uh, with uh, Sean Vestal. Uh, who says home for him is Idaho and Mormonism. And as I mentioned, his uh, previous collection, Godforsaken Idaho, burrows into uh, that history. Sean Vesta, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, you being on with us. A little delay there, uh, getting connected. We're uh, we're happy to have you uh, with us. Let's uh, jump in. Very interesting uh, uh, debut novel. You have uh, had another collection out, Godforsaken Idaho, which was well-received. Yeah. Uh, won the uh, 2014's Penn Robert W. Bingham uh, uh, Prize. And on, on that occasion, I was reading another review that, uh, that you gave. You... Uh, they asked you, why Idaho? Why Godforsaken Idaho? You said, for you, home is Idaho and Mormonism. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Um, uh, those are two things that I didn't write about for a long time, because I was under the impression that, they I don't know, they weren't interesting or they were too much me. You know, The other writers I read and liked weren't writing about Mormons in Idaho, and so it took me a while to get there, but... Uh, my heritage, you know, and so to a certain degree, when you imagine things, you're imagining them out of your own life. That's what I had. Uh, so they tell you to write about what you know, I guess. And but uh, so you grew up in Gooding, Idaho, which is near Twin Falls. That's right. Yep, about thirty miles from Twin, and um, 
in an LDS family and, you know, a lot of LDS people in, in the area, of course. Your family still LDS? Um, most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a brother who's a bishop in Denver, and uh, my mother is, is still devout, and my brothers and sisters are, um, I have a lot of brothers and sisters, so <laughs> yeah, some of them are and some aren't. Yeah. <laughs> when, did you, uh, when did you leave the faith? I left basically when I left home. I was um, uh, I was I was sort of gone from the church before I actually left it in a way. I just uh, it was something that I knew I was doing by the time I left the house, and so um, that was pretty much the end when I went to college. Mm-hmm. Does that cause strain in the family? Yes, it did. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, to my mom's credit, you know, I was a real hard kid to deal with at that point. Um, but we always stayed together as a family. We always, you know, there was never any, uh, she was certainly unhappy with me, um, but we were always a family. She always loved me, mm-hmm. you know, and so um, we've always stayed close throughout some of the rocky times, so. Uh, so that, but that is that's your heritage, and I guess that's uh, it's it's a lot on your mind. Uh, some of the stories in Godforsaken Idaho, for example, you do, and oh, a lot of you know, there, there's a lot of faith, ta- writing about faith, thinking about faith in your yeah. work. Yeah, and I think for me, it's uh, it's a it's that's been an evolving subject and one that's been interesting to look back on um, because when I was younger younger you know a younger child i was i guess you would say i was faithful i mean i don't know how mindful i was about it but you know i believed and i and it was something i was aware of and and then i um, stopped believing and like i think a lot of people in those circumstances became kind of um simplistically defiant or just rejected everything without even thinking too much about it and then i'd like to think i have a more nuanced view of things now where I'm not, um, I, I don't know, where I can see different sides of things, and, and I'm interested in kind of exploring um, faith and doubt and, and on a spectrum rather than from a single um, self-righteous, self-certain point. Hmm. Uh, so uh, fundamentalist Mormonism is, is a central you know, theme in, in uh and plot a point in in your new book, uh, Daredevils. Why, why did you why did you go there? Well, uh, you know, almost with not with a super great amount of intention. Um, I you know I wrote this story, and and in the beginnings of the story for me were with the character Jason, who's you know the, a mainstream Mormon in Idaho, um, with this family connection to the polygamists. Um, as I moved toward bringing them into the story, I guess what interested me about it was um, the, the the sort of complicated relationship of polygamy in the mainstream church, which, you know, I'm not coming at it from a political or, a, you know, critical point of view necessarily so much as just a story. But um, when you grow up in the mainstream church, the issue of polygamy is, is pushed aside to such a degree that it um, it obscures what is true about it within the church's history, and to some degree, I think, still within the church's theology. 
so uh, eventually I thought it was kind of interesting to have, I hoped it was kind of interesting to have, um, a single family with these different elements in it, in a way that is somewhat like the church, um, whereas there are, there are different kinds of Mormons, you know, and um, I, I do feel like it's not fair to tar mainstream Mormons with polygamy the way a lot of people do, but I also don't think you can completely omit polygamy from the story of the church the way the church sometimes wants to, I think. So Loretta is a very interesting uh, uh, character. You, you say you started, I guess, the, the novel Near Mind started with Jason. When, when did uh, Loretta make an appearance in, in proceedings? Well, um, it's hard for me to say exactly when she made an appearance, but I wrote this story originally from Jason's point of view, and Loretta was on the periphery. And um, as I revised the novel, it was it was clear, and, and people who would read it and give me advice would tell me, um, you know, who's really interesting is, is is this girl that you're hardly really writing about at all. And uh, so it's just by the time I pieced together what was happening, and I say that because I don't really start with a whole story. You know, I start with a few little pieces, and then I work on them, and inch by inch kind of figure out what the story is. And um, so by the time I sort of built a whole draft of a novel, and Loretta was not in there very much, it was still clear that she was in the most dramatic position. Of all the characters, she was the one to whom the most uh, important and uh, high-stakes things were happening. So just became a question of sort of drafting the novel more toward her consciousness and her point of view. This is mid-1970s, and uh, yeah. Loretta's 15 years old. She's slipping out of the bedroom every evening to meet her Gentile boyfriend. Then her parents catch her, right? And the, the, the solution here, I guess, is in this particular family and society is to marry her off. Yes. Marry her off to a man who already has a wife. Yes, and that's, um, there are many things that I researched about that community. I, I don't have firsthand um, experience in it. Um, I, I couldn't tell you for sure that that exact dynamic uh, happens a lot, but I guess I assume in every world there are rebellious, independent-minded people, um, and they're going to clash with the orthodoxy somehow. Uh, the the nature of this particular clash is, um, you know, I imagined it, but uh, but the general outline of the way things work in that community, or did work in that community, I, I think is I'm pretty comfortable with with uh, with that. You know, young girls are sort of married into families um, in a in a sort of socially constructed way, as opposed to courtship and, and, and the way we we do it. Wonder, do you have your book with you? I do. Uh, and I don't know. Page if, numbers are a little different than the, the main okay. page numbers, though. But. Uh, so, in my version, is page thirty-five. It's uh, it's a section chapter that begins January thirteenth, nineteen seventy-five, Short Creek, Arizona. Yeah. Ruth brushes Loretta's hair. Yeah. You can find that. This this gets us in. It kind of gives us a little of the character of, of Loretta, and and also of Ruth, who's the first wife of uh, of Dean. Yeah. So that that page, and then uh, through the first full paragraph of. Uh, of the next page. Okay. January 13th, 1975, Short Creek, Arizona. Ruth brushes Loretta's hair like she's haltering a horse. Yank, 
yank, hold. Loretta stiffens against each pull. In the dim round mirror above the dresser, Loretta watches Ruth's face, the same determined, resigned look as always, her dough-kneading face. A weak scent of paint lingers, and from downstairs comes the smell of Ruth's carob and date sheet cakes. Loretta's eyes drift downward, and then her head drifts downward, and Ruth places one palm firmly over each ear and sets Loretta's head roughly back in position. She divides Loretta's hair neatly in an ivory line along the scalp and begins braiding, her mouth tightened into an insistent little fist. I think it's prettier long, Loretta says, because she cannot help herself. Ruth turns a braid tightly against Loretta's scalp. It is a joyous day, Aunt Loretta, she says, but a sacred one as well. It is important to remain modest before the Lord. Something tries to rise from Loretta's stomach. Aunt Loretta. This is what the children will call her. And then the the next paragraph, if you would, please. Okay, all right. I believe you know this, Ruth says. She looks into the mirror, into Loretta's eyes, without changing her expression. Loretta returns the look mimicking Ruth's flatness. At first, Loretta thought Ruth's expression revealed anger or frustration, but she has come to see that Ruth has merely emptied herself and adopted the aspect of duty in all things, even with her children. Even the night she and Dean had come home, come to the home of Loretta's parents, and they had all knelt in prayer on the porch. The Lord has given me a testimony of the righteousness of our choice, Ruth had said, her face blank. I know that we will be exalted in the celestial kingdom as if she had willed herself out of herself. Dean had had blushed, his enormous ears luminous with blood, and though Loretta hardly knew him, and though she was just 15, she could see in his rabbity eyes that it wasn't the celestial kingdom he had on his mind. That kind of uh, paints the the picture of the the, the, the different characters there. And Loretta, it seems to me, and we will learn later in the novel, is, is... She's probably not going to head toward a life of duty and resignation and blankness. Right. Yes. She she starts the novel with a with a desire to be to be free, to be out into the world, you know, to to to, to follow worldly things as as uh, people often in in sort of close knit insidery religions talk about worldly things uh that's very appealing to her mm. everything out there draws her interest ruth is coping with things at least in your telling of it or how you paint her by as you say you know going going to duty all these resigned duty uh, i'm yeah. guessing perhaps as some women in the flds community might push back on that characterization that you know that picture um, perhaps so. I, maybe you could, I mean, in my mind, it's the way that, that I could explain a strong-willed, smart, independent-minded, how, how does a person with those characteristics uh, resign themselves to or accept the, a kind of secondary role, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine there are many things people in the FL community might object to about the book, but I, I guess I'm not sure what about Ruth you think they might, um, uh, I mean, her sense of her duty, I guess, is the, is sort of hoping a positive uh, component of her character. I see, I see, yeah. 
I was just kind of looking through the prism of that particular passage. Um, uh-huh. And and I guess the, the what I can imagine them object, a person, a wife in the LDS FLDS community, objecting to is is the the need to go there. You know, the need to resign yourself to, to duty. But you're saying oh, you're yeah. at least in your your view, it's a it's a it's a way of way of hope. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 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 definitely not coming from a place that's uh, you know reverent toward that that tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I feel like the whole the whole dynamic of most of the characters in my mind is um, they're individuals that are set up against some sort of an orthodoxy that forces them to make uh, to either grind down some part of themselves and accept it or push against it and try to get through uh, cross to the other side and, and escape from it. And I, I feel like that's true of all the characters, even the ones who aren't in quite such a bad situation as Loretta is. Hmm. What if you could talk a little bit about um, the, the broader setting, which is the American West. Of course, this is your home, our, our homes. Is, you know, we're kind of... Uh, either raised in this, uh, stewing in, in this mix. Um, what is it about the West? I think it affects a lot of your characters, or at least they're, they have to come to terms with the, the space, the distance, the landscape. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the truth is it's just who I am and, and what I'm familiar with in the same way that, I, you know, Mormonism is to a degree and Idaho is. So, you know, I don't set out thinking um, there, there are these different places I might write about, I, um, although there are for sure, but the West is the one that I can write about with any experience and authority. So I just tend to put my works there. Um, the, the idea of distances and loneliness, that does seem to me to be uh, an important characteristic of the region. You know, a lot of times... I've been in, involved in a conversation recently about wh- what does the West mean to me or what does it suggest to me. And the first thing it suggests to me is a kind of uh, is all the iconography that that really is not the way I experience the West. It's it's almost a, a trademark or something. You know, certain kinds of mountains, certain kinds of streams, um, people doing certain kinds of things like fly fishing. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like the West has that sort of. Uh, marketing collection of images and that is overtaken <laughs> what it actually is as a place to live in or at least for me which is more distance um kind of loneliness agriculture um these these pieces of it that have been more prominent than the picture postcard kind of image of the west and being in a car and being on a long drive uh seems particularly western to me uh i don't know whenever i go to cities or places back east and i get home one of the things i like to do is be back in my own car by myself uh listening to whatever music i want to listen to and (laughs) driving around somewhere Um, it's certainly of course people drive everywhere but it does seem like um these spaces and this distance is um is a key factor of the landscape, and it's one that, in some way, emerges in people and in characters too. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, that brand is uh, you call it a brand, right? The the, the West. <laughs> it's yeah. I, I'm yeah. I'm I'm stuck on that image of a fly fisherman, you know, out in some river somewhere, which I guess uh, maybe a majority of Westerners don't don't even do. Um, but so you you get in your car and you and you drive and you're alone, so that that kind of fits, doesn't it? That's a Western yeah. thing. <laughs> I guess it does. Yeah. Um. But it's very much a response to all of the travel with other people, whether it's flying or riding a subway if I'm in a city or, you know, we're just being around other people, you know, from a town of 2,000 people. And, uh, and I grew up in a, you know, a house full of people. So um, those two things somehow have combined to make me really value uh, solitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was reading you um, growing up in Gooding. You, I can't remember what, what movie it was. You, you you drove an hour to to go. I guess you drive an hour to go see any movie. Is that the deal? Or oh, um, I wonder if I was talking about Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. That was that's, it. Yes, that's when I lived in uh, Roseburg, Oregon. Oh, okay. But we did, we had to drive in Gooding. We had a theater, but we mostly had to drive to Twin Falls to see a movie. Mm-hmm. That's about thirty minutes away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that <laughs> Pulp Fiction, that was a different a different kind of small western town is Roseburg, Oregon and um and we would drive to Eugene to uh, see movies or or to see the newest movies first, mm-hmm. you know, more accurately. Yeah. And there was uh, growing up a uh, strict Mormon, there'd be some culture um I don't know, conflicts perhaps based on what movie you wanted to see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We weren't supposed to go to R-rated movies when I was a kid. That was for sure. And uh, I remember a couple of, I was like a, what would I have been, like a freshman in high school maybe, and a couple of the older Mormon guys took me to uh, Urban Cowboy. Uh-huh. And, um, um, and then they were so self-conscious about it that they that they made us leave because they thought they were <laughs> exposing me to something that I hadn't uh, seen before. <laughs> And um, I, I just remembered being like, oh, I want to watch every R-rated movie. <laughs> I mean, every everything I wasn't supposed to do was exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to want to bring in Evil Knievel. Um, okay. Fascinating character, and and he he may or may not make an appearance in your book here. Uh, there's a character who may or may not be Evil Knievel in in Daredevils, and again, that gets us into the title as well. Um, in fact, you uh, wrote a very interesting piece in the New Yorker magazine. Uh, so, and that happened, I guess, you were growing up very near where Evil Knievel was, uh, made an attempt over the, the Snake River Canyon. More following the break. In the Bay Area of Northern California, they're considering taxing themselves to create buffers for climate-related sea level rise. It's an accelerated problem. We have to work harder. We have to start sooner. We have to do the things we can do today. Uh, to be able to get ready for four to six feet. How they do it, who's complaining, and why. I'm Steve Kerwin, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
Utah Public Radio would like to congratulate Nadra Hafar, education curator in the Utah State University Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, for receiving a certification from the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. Hafar is now certified with the Change Leader Institute, which works to help advance communities through art and culture. Kudos from Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Sean Vestal. His debut novel is out. It's called Daredevils, set in Arizona and Idaho in the mid-1970s. The heart of the novel is 15-year-old Loretta, who's married off by her Mormon fundamentalist parents to a man who already has a wife. Dean Harder is his name. He's a devout yet materialistic fundamentalist. And a very interesting uh, other characters in the novel, uh, Dean's teenage nephew Jason, who falls hard for Loretta. He's a Zeppelin and Tolkien fan, and he worships evil Knievel, longs to leave his closed-minded community. Other characters in the book, uh, Ruth, Dean's uh, first wife, um, who as a child in the 1950s was separated from her parents during the Short Creek Raid. Federal agents descended on the Mormon fundamentalist community. Jason's best friend, Boyd, part Native American, caught up in the activist spirit of the time, and a uh, sleazy chatterbox man who might or might not be evil Knievel himself. And we have uh, with us uh, Sean Vestal for uh, the remainder of the hour. You can uh, join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or email is upraxcess at uh, gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Sean Vestal, you have a fascinating history, including what, what happened with your father and therefore with your, your family. In fact, you write about this in a in a, what they call a Kindle single, a.k.a. Charles Abbott. Let me just read the first sentence. One Sunday afternoon, 1977, a Mormon family of a man gave his pregnant wife and six children some distressing news. He had broken the law and would soon be arrested. He gave them even worse news. He was fleeing the country, and he wanted the family to follow. This is this is your history, your father's history. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely right. Um, you know, it was just, the, it's the oddest thing, and still to this day, it's, something that I think about all the time and um, have a hard time remembering much about. But um, uh, Dad was someone who just was in a, a more or less kind of respectable position in town. He was a Chamber of Commerce guy, and he managed the Merck department store and was a member of the bishopric in the church. And um, he, it turns out, was not that person. Um, it, but uh, th- this afternoon, this March 1977 afternoon, he sits us all down and tells us that uh, he didn't really tell us what he did, but he said he had done something bad and he was going to be arrested. And So we all followed him to Canada, Lethbridge, Canada, where we spent about a week, um, give or take. And um, as I said, I, it's, I can remember very, very little of that experience. And uh, I'm sure there's some sort of a traumatic or shock type of a reaction involved there, but uh, I, I really wish I could remember more about mm-hmm. it. It's a fascinating time to me. And um, eventually he, some of his friends talked him into returning, and he came back and was sentenced to jail. Uh, but And that became the first of many crimes he committed. Um, he kind of fell apart after that. Mm. But that experience being on the lamb as a family, it's so strange to me, and I spent a certain amount of time trying to... F- 
to figure out what he was thinking or what he was up to, and I even talked to him about it later after a kind of long estrangement. Um, but it's just uh, it's just not much satisfaction. It's just <laughs> there's no real mm-hmm. solid answers to why a person would do something that ridiculous, honestly. And that, uh, I guess, on maybe on differing levels, it's uh, a lot of people have an, an experience of finding out someone close to them is not who they thought they were. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that has something to do with my interest as a fiction writer in facades and lying and um, the, the distance between an image and a reality. Um, it might have something to do with my, You know, what I got interested in with Evil Knievel beyond being just kind of a fan of his when I was a kid, um, as I got older and began to see that this this huge yawning gulf between what kind of a person he was and how he was presented and how he presented himself, um, to me, is, is it's just fascinating. It's fascinating to me that he was this hero of patriotism and uh, uh, clean living for kids while just being the wildest, most egocentric, uh, impulsive, irresponsible person you can imagine. Let's talk about Evil Knievel. This is, and he makes a, maybe we're not making parents of the book, and it's, but um, Jason uh, lives in this, uh, near where Evil Knievel is going to make this attempt on the Snake River Canyon. Um, and of course, we know this is a real event, 1970s. You, you you paint this in the book and in this New Yorker uh, article very well. You t- take me back. Um, 1970s, we have Fat Elvis, and we have a President resigning, and the nation sort of looks to this daredevil figure. Yeah. It's, it, it's amazing to me. It's just amazing to me that he became the kind of cultural figure that he did um, on TV. On Well, I guess it's Saturdays. I, for some reason, remember it as Sundays, but... Um, you know, he'd be on the wide world of sports often, jumping things. They would um, treat him as a as a kind of serious, maybe serious is not the right word, but legitimate type of a spectacle, um, a, a hero for kids. You know, tons of toys were made based on his image. Um, and when I was I was eight in 1974, and that's when he was coming to the Snake River Canyon, about 30 miles from where I grew up. I thought, well, sure, surely we're going to go to this. And my parents didn't take me. And now I have an eight-year-old now. I, I understand that that might be the smarter thing to do if you were a parent in that situation. <laughs> but at the time, what I remembered was, because it was on a Sunday, we weren't going to go. That's what stuck in my mind. Because it was a Sunday and we were keeping the Sabbath day holy, my parents weren't letting me go to see my hero. Hmm. And uh, I have often sort of jokingly said that that was um, maybe planted the seeds of my departure from the church. <laughs> right. It was the Evil Knievel instant. Uh, Evil Knievel yeah. did, and I hadn't remembered this, but I remembered when you when you talked about this in this article, and uh, he did present himself as a, you know, he'd, he'd give these little lectures of be good, stay in school, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, his toys were among the best-selling toys. The toys based on his image were among the best-selling toys uh, in history. And the, the Christmas 1973, the, the wind-up Evil Knievel racer was the number one toy in the country. And I got that for Christmas that year. And 
it's something, if you go around the West, there are a few things that um, that come up a lot with Evil Knievel, and that's one of them, having that toy, um, riding your bike off a ramp. Um, that was such a thing that they, that they researched it. There was a research paper called The Evil Knievel Effect, about how many kids were ending up in ERs doing imitation daredevil things. Yeah, but it became a, a paper written on it, right? Yeah. And they even named it the but, Evil Knievel Effect. Right. You know, the other thing is, though, that it is very common to run into people who saw him at a bar, ran into him, had a drink with him. Uh, you, you know, he the idea that he might just show up somewhere, um, actually, that actually happened a lot. I'm constantly hearing from people who said, I was a waitress and I, and he hit on me. Or I was a... <laughs> You know, we were in a bar, and he came in, and, you know, it just, uh, he's a person of the West, and he was going around to towns all the time, and he uh, was a big, large personality, and uh, he left a lot in his wake. You write that his unique quality was not his courage. Many others have, I'm quoting from New Yorker, many others have done uh, things more dangerous and foolhardy. He was, though, from the start, a grandmaster of charismatic bluster. And you point out, to remind us, that uh, Muhammad Ali recognized this in him and called him the white Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And and uh, he responded by saying, no, he's the, no, that guy is the, the black evil Knievel. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he just was... Um, you know, he's an exaggerated version of the kind of guy I think we all know a certain number of, these sort of charismatic um, forces of nature, you know, people who ignore a lot of the rules and get away with it um, by the force of their personality or, or, or simply by their sort of force, by their insistence that they're going to do it. Um, but he he also just was someone, I'm told, I didn't know him, but I'm told that he was someone who was just a uh, uh, kind of a star in a way, like someone who walked into the room and people were just interested in him. And there is something about that um, that kind of quality that we will we'll forgive a lot of uh, misdeeds of a person who has that quality. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, this is a passage we hadn't set up before the, the interview. Uh, uh, this is uh, page 236 in my version. could be page 244. Um, there's some, it, it starts out, here are some things Jason finds surprising about Evil Knievel. So Jason and Loretta have met up with this man who may or may not be Evil Knievel. So, okay. Um, I didn't have that one marked, but I will find it real quick here. And this uh, gets us into maybe the experience that you had as kind of growing up and discovering and researching Evil Knievel. He was a different man from from the, the you know the the hero that you had as a yeah as a boy those are that's I hadn't thought of it that way but that's probably true yeah. you want me to read a little bit uh, of it yeah it's at the bottom of uh, two thirty six and then then the, the next page the, they okay. had this encounter with this evil Knievel person yeah. here are some of the things Jason finds surprising about evil Knievel he is short and not physically imposing in any way Jason towers over him. His eyes are amazing, totally unforeseen, cool lime slivered with yellow. There seems to be a dying light behind them, a weak glow. When he first sat down, his eyes locked on Jason's while he gave him a curious half-smile and that bright shifting color. Jason took it for intelligence, for kindness, for wisdom, for love. 
He is completely unsatisfied. All he does is complain. He is not limping, though he could not have even been out of the hospital for that long after the Wembley jump, that spectacular crash Jason had missed while eating dinner with Dean's family the afternoon he met Loretta. He wears ordinary clothing, much like any man Jason might know in Gooding or Twin Falls or Boise, blue jeans with a leather belt and a metal buckle, long-sleeved snap-button shirt over a T-shirt, cowboy boots curled up at the toe. He's kind of dumb, but he thinks he's brilliant, also like most every man Jason might know back home. His eyes steal immediately toward any hint of womanhood, the 50-something with the piled white hair alone in a veil of smoke at the bar, the two middle-aged women who sat two tables over for about an hour, giggling at his every leer, Cheryl Teagues on a TV commercial for underarm deodorant, which he watched in its entirety from 20 feet away, and Loretta, of course, Loretta. He is older than Jason's father, and he looks at his skin pebbled like a football. He is drunker than anyone Jason has ever seen in person, Dean Martin drunk. He had bumped into a chair as he first walked toward their table and then corrected too far the other way and had to catch himself, stop, and hold out his hands like he was balancing on a wire. None of that matters to Jason. He doesn't love him any less, and that's the only word for it, love. Because running into him like this floods Jason with energy and hope. Then Jason goes on to say, this is what life can be. Um, yeah. I don't know, is there, but first of all, you describe, or at least from Jason's point of view, this evil Knievel person as being kind of dumb, but thinks he's brilliant, like most every man that uh, Jason might know back home. That <laughs> resonates, yeah. I guess, the, the ego of a lot of men. Uh, so Jason... I don't know, this, this hero worship, it, it kind of seems tied up in this, this escape that he, that he wants. He's running from something or running to something? Yeah. I mean, his, his, his desire to escape, I think, is a little more generic. Uh, well, I hope it's not generic, but, I mean, it's a little more standard-issue teenage, um, you know, just desire to, to break free. Than Loretta's, which, which to me is, comes from a place where she's really being um, mistreated. I mean, she's she's she has a she's a victim of a force that is uh, completely trying to dominate her life in a way that I think is is um, is is just wrong. And so her her desire to get away is is framed in that is more serious. It's deeper. It's bigger. Um, Jason is like a lot of us were. Uh, we don't realize that our misery is not so deep and, and bad. You know, we just want to, or I did at least when I was a teenager. I, I wanted to get to another town, another place. I, I thought things had to be more interesting and cooler somewhere else. Um, when in fact, my life was pretty good. You know, but at, at the age of seventeen, I couldn't quite realize it. And Jason's that way a little bit, I think. Um, to him, Knievel, I almost think of him as a, his relationship to evil Knievel is as similar to someone's relationship to a religion. Um, and I use some Mormon language uh, around the descriptions of evil, not with any intention other than to sort of help me be in the right mental place to think about what I'm doing with that persona in the novel, but 
Jason basically has faith in Knievel, and then that faith is challenged or lost, perhaps, um, toward the end of the novel. What, if evil Knievel is a religion for Jason, what what is that religion? What are, what are the main tenets? Well, I think um, escape or freedom. You know, I think the mythology of bravery and release, you know, just the idea that there's, that the restrictions and the boundaries that hold us down are, are um, breachable, you know, the things that, that limit us in a way can be um, leapt over. By the way, uh, Jay, how, how autobiographical is Jason? Jason's Zeppelin and Tolkien fan, does that describe you as a young man? Not quite. Jason is, uh, there's a lot of autobiographical uh, sort of setting, I would say, in Jason's story. I grew up where he grew up, um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the Knievel jump was a part of my life, but I was eight when he was the age he is. So his music, cultural uh, interests, I was aware of those things, but they're more like my older sister's era. I was, um, I came along a little later. And I like Zeppelin fine, but they were uh, they were no longer the, um, you know, the popular band. And mm-hmm. so I'm an, I'm a child of the '80s. Yep. <laughs> so well, what, were, what were the what were the bands? What were your bands? Well, my band, you know, REM. Okay. R- yeah. You know, and it, it was a big uh, and to me, like, to, we had to drive to another town, go to the record store, and maybe find REM there, and so. That was a cultural uh, sort of touchstone for me, which is growing up and, and going out and seeking the pop culture that was outside the mainstream. And that's part of the whole dynamic that probably these kids are um, in the novel are, are experiencing, too. Just mm-hmm. the idea that the, the, there is a world out there beyond where you live that's um, full of interesting, fascinating, artistic strange things that you can go find out about. Mm. So music was that for me when I was a kid, for sure. Now it's hard to imagine the idea of everything you ever want not being available in your pocket. It it is a, yeah, it is a lot different. I don't know if it's better. I don't either. I mean, I, I like that. I like being able to find things quickly, of course, but there's something, um, I don't know, some kind of deeper connection to the experience of going, getting a record, or later getting cassettes, whatever, and uh, not being able to tell what the singer was saying and not being able to just look up the lyrics instantly online. And I I don't know, reading the liner notes and looking at it, uh, it's a much, for me, a much stronger connection um, based on the fact that I had to put more into the as a, as the as the consumer of the art, I had to put more into it. You know, I had mm-hmm. to expend more effort to connect with it. I want to bring your uh, biography forward. You, at a certain point, you ended up in Spokane. You've become a fixture there. You write a column for the local uh, local paper. Um, yeah. Tell me about life in Spokane. Well, uh, I life in Spokane is pretty good. I think it's. Uh, you know, it's a town that has had 
it's rough times and still does. There's a lot of poverty here, but um, in, in many ways, it's a, an exciting and fun time to be here. There's a lot going on in the arts. There are a lot of writers here. I feel like I know so many writers and poets that uh, that I am almost always missing a reading it would be nice to go to. I just, uh, um, the town just seems full of a certain amount of energy that it didn't have for a while. Um, young people sticking around, doing creative, interesting things. Um, so it's it's a town that's uh, hasn't been among the, the most loved western towns, you know. People will uh, take their shots at Spokane for sure, but uh, I have really come to love it. And I moved here from Bozeman, Montana, so I moved here from one kind of western town, you know, the trout-streamy, uh, log cabiny kind of the west, and it took me a while to, to see anything beauty, beautiful or valuable here. But now when I go back to Bozeman, it seems, uh, and of course it's beautiful there, but um, there's so much of the western iconography that I talked about earlier uh, it almost doesn't seem like a, quite a real place. Well, and that yeah, yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? That that uh, that it at a certain point it can seem like it's made up, you know, seem like it's not a real place. Well, and for for in in certain of those kinds of towns, Bozeman or Aspen or you know, when, when a lot of people are sort of moving there with their money already made and. Uh, um, engaging with the Western iconography in a really overt way, like building mansions that are made to look like log cabins and uh, filling the homes with art that is based on uh, trout or um, wildlife. Uh, and It's almost a, a design element um, that, that adds a kind of level of inauthent- inauthenticity, at least to me, I guess. Uh, so, just have a couple of minutes left. Um, Daredevil is out. N- another novel next. What's next? Uh, well, I'm working on uh, stories, and I have a novel idea, and um, none of them are—they're uh, all down the road. I, none of them are within sight. Of the, none, the end is not in sight on any of them for me just yet. So, what? so I'm continuing to work, and uh, we'll see what comes up next. Can you divulge any subject matter? For any of those? Oh, um, well, my novel idea is so, so early, but I have I have an ancestor that is believed to be the first Jewish man who was baptized into the Mormon church, Alexander Nybar. Hmm. And he's a, he just has a fascinating story. And I've been reading a lot about his life and thinking about pieces of it. And I may, I'm interested in writing a novel... I don't know how loosely based on him. I haven't figured that out yet. But I've done some writing, and um, I, I thought maybe I'd stop writing about Mormonism, but now I find myself looking at the earlier days. He was a, he was a person who was baptized in England during the first wave of Mormon missionaries over there and was a colleague and confidant of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. and So his story really closely aligns with the Mormon story in America, which I think is a, I just think it's a fascinating story. Well, that that, that does sound a very interesting uh, subject matter. Um, Sean Vestal's been a pleasure. Uh, Sean Vestal, uh, by the way, you can find him at seanvestal.com. 
the latest book is Daredevils. It's a novel, um, and you can read his column uh, in the uh, Spokes, uh, Spokane Spokesman Review. That's at spokesman.com. John Vestal, thank you. Thank you. And uh, hope you'll join us tomorrow. We have a very interesting project happening uh, at the downtown uh, Salt Lake City Library on uh, women photojournalists. Women capture Utah. They photograph fires, floods, crime scenes, politicians, sports, and the arts, outdoors, families, and countless personal stories through her eyes as a photojournalism exhibit in the downtown Salt Lake City Library. Sharing Utah's stories is captured through the lens of 20 of the state's female news photographers. We'll have three of them on to talk about their stories tomorrow on the program. Thanks for listening today. The first time Johannes Brahms wrote this, a violinist said it didn't quite work. The second time, Brahms' friend Clara Schumann said, nope, still not right. The third time was a charm. Brahms' Piano Quintet, Take Three, in concerts on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us Monday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you, and you'll even find yourself retelling them. They're that good. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The time now is 10 o'clock. Living on Earth is coming up next.